As has already been mentioned, what a joyful enterprise it is for us to be able to come together this evening. Perhaps the words spoken by our Savior in the Sermon on the Mount would echo the sentiments of our hearts as well. Indeed, when he declared, Blessed are they that do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Matthew 5, verse number 6. As we desire to be filled with the teachings of the Word of God and to use them to encourage ourselves to walk ever more closely to the nature of our Savior, tonight we continue our study of the book of Colossians in the New Testament. We began this series some four weeks ago now exactly as we began to look at the chapters one by one. So far as we have studied the aspects of this book, we've been lifted to the great heights of what God through Paul shared with the people of that day and also what he shares with us by inspiration as well. To recall some of those things we've seen, we've been reminded of the fact that God's grace can be known in truth. We've been reminded of the preeminence of Christ. We've been reminded of the greatness of the strength that's obtainable through him and how that we are to walk ever pleasing unto God. Perhaps most recently we noted the marvelous mystery that's no longer concealed, but rather revealed, and it is by way of the gospel, and it is none other than our Savior himself. These good brethren in Colossae needed to be reminded of these truths and ever how useful, powerful they can be for us too. This evening as we make preparation for our study, we'll begin in chapter 2, verse number 4, in fact, as we begin that, it's my intent for us to move our way through the 17th verse of this chapter this evening. But as we remind ourselves and encounter these beautiful ideas, may we notice the thoroughness, the power, and the profound grandness that's to be seen in them. In fact, if you and I can take ourselves back in time and to place ourselves in the city of Colossae some 20 centuries ago, we would find that there are things taking place then that mimic ever so closely to what we encounter today. And thus, these teachings are as relevant, as needful, and as wonderful now as they were at the time they were written. With nothing further to be said concerning the introduction, let us turn our attention then to chapter 2 and begin reading in verse 4. And let's read through verse number 9. First of all, verses 4 through 9, Colossians chapter 2. And this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I am with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him, rooted and built up in him, established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving." Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit, after the traditions of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We'll pause at that point, revisit these verses, and lay a foundation for the greatness that's to be seen in them. And notice as we again revisit verse 4. We have already come to appreciate that the Colossian letter had a tremendous degree of historical significance in the sense that the background is ever important to understand that book. After Paul, I should say after Paul's companions had left that region, there were various teachers who entered into the Colossian area, not only here but also in the neighboring city of Hierapolis, and they had things to teach and to share that were not in accordance to the strict truth of the, of the Word of God. As those teachers shared those things, 
we've already noted in chapter 1 that much of it had to deal with a mysterious aspect of higher planes of knowledge. Some were teaching that they and they alone had the key to unlock the knowledge to be understood and revealed by God. Paul helped them appreciate it's in Christ. All wisdom and knowledge is in Christ, Colossians 2 verse 3. And to expound upon that point, he said, In this I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. The Greek text, in fact, means the following. To be misled by persuasive speech. There are those that are still proceeding by way of using persuasive speech to twist, to rest, to unseat the truth of the Word of God and to share that misteaching with others. And far too often they meet with success. Paul said, This I say, lest, in order that you be not moved aside from the truth of the gospel, be not led astray from what has been taught to you, all the while the persuasiveness of speech is certainly to be noted. Isn't it often the case that those who are so gifted in speech can often come to rely upon their own rationale and their own thinking and in that status to share then that which is no longer based upon the truth? Should we not be reminded of Paul's approach in 1 Corinthians 2 verses 1 and 2? Though Paul was a brilliant man, he himself was intellectual, intelligent, scholarly, and yet he could say, when I came among you, I came not with excellency of speech. Well, why not, Paul? For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified, so that your faith would not stand in the wisdom of men, but rather in the wisdom of God. And isn't that still the desire today, if we would be pleasing unto Him? And thus, he continues on in verse number 5. To help us see rather amazingly, for though I be absent in the flesh, yet I, I, am I with you in the Spirit, joying and beholding your order and the steadfastness of your faith in Christ. The interesting note of their faith, though they may not yet have completely moved aside, there was that strong temptation to do so, and Paul's attempt was to recapture them before those Gnostic teachers and their teaching, if you will, was to have its evil work amongst them. In fact, might we not remember 1 Thessalonians 5.21, prove all things, hold to that which is good. That idea is as needful today as ever. The word prove means to test, to analyze, to investigate, to consider, and thus you and I, when faced with those teachings that we hear, should ever appreciate as to whether or not they are in accordance to the Word of God. These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. To quote Acts 17.11, Thus, even today, now over 20 centuries later, you and I, at least in principle, can be faced with the same problems and challenges that these in Colossae faced so, so long in the past. The remarkable fact then in verse 5 tells us of the dearness and the nearness in spirit that Paul felt to these Colossian people. We might note again, Paul did not establish this congregation. He admitted he'd never seen them in the flesh, and yet he felt a kinship to them, a nearness that truly excited him in spirit. And he says, though I'm not there in the flesh, your thoughts are in fact mine. I wish you to be strong. I'm with you in spirit. Is it not true that sometimes you and I can feel that very same issue? 
perhaps when those whom we're able to support in foreign lands, we can be a part of that work financially, but also by way of our thinking and our prayers and our de desirous hope that things would be well and successful for them. Paul admitted here in verse number 5 that he joyed over them, and that joy was especially related to the marvelous order that they exhibited. That word order means arrangement. Might we notice that apparently in Colossae there was a regular arrangement and characterization of their work, and for that Paul was thankful. Apparently the Gnostic teaching had not reached its terrible end yet. We learn from history, though, that by the second century it had engulfed much of that part of the world. What a tragedy. What had begun so powerfully and mighty had by that time, it seems, been overwhelmed by the error of men. Notice also the steadfastness of their faith is mentioned, and for that they were complimented. That takes us immediately to verse number 6. As ye have therefore received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. A passage that seems so innocent, so simple, and yet so profound. As you've received Christ Jesus, walk in him. Notice thus what that does in joining upon the Colossians. They were not given by the inspired Paul any liberty to change, any liberty to reinvent, any liberty to extend the boundaries of what they had been taught. As you've received Christ, so walk you in him. The church for well over 25 years now has been facing a rather dramatic and powerful thrust from the perspective of the change agents that are so often seen. If you read various magazines such as Christianity Today or other particular articles or documents, you will understand that our land all across its borders from east to west and north to south faces a rather tremendous challenge. There are various ideas that so often surface that represent the need to change things for the gospel doesn't reach people anymore. We need to soup it up, we need to make it enticing, and we need to make it appealing. We need to change our worship, do things in different ways. We might well appreciate that there certainly might be reasons to simply not be in tradition, to always be in accordance to that which is of gospel truth. As we contemplate changes, may we understand they need to ever be within the boundaries of what we have been revealed in truth. For if we step beyond them, we catalog ourselves with those listed in 2 John verses 19 and 11. Those who have erred from the faith, who no longer have Christ, and who are thus standing outside the realm of safety. The thoughts then of verse 6 teach us the steadfastness that we must have to remain ever true to the nature of Christ himself. Is it not said that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever? Hebrews 13, 8. Thus, if the Lord doesn't change, his worship principles do not change, and all the things concerning the blessed body that's his must also have the trueness with which it was originally invested. Notice in verse number 7, Paul's thought has naturally continued to this point rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, as ye have been taught, abounding therein with thanksgiving. The need to be rooted, verse number 7, and built up in him. The idea describes that of where one's foundation is. As you and I think about, say, the plants of a field, their roots run deep, and the deeper those roots go, at least often the case, 
the sturdier, the heartier, the more able that plant is to withstand and sustain the difficulties that the environment might present. In what way are you and I rooted? Do our roots spiritually run deep or are they shallow? There's a timeless lesson about shallow roots given to us in the Lord's parable of the sower in Matthew 13. That one that was the seed on the wayside soil might me remember the birds catched it away and it didn't produce any fruit at all. That stony ground, wasn't it true on that occasion that it germinated and brought forth for a little while? However, we began to note that it did not have the earth that provided the sustenance and strength it needed, and thus when the heat of the day came, it withered away. The thorny, the thorny ground soil, it too came forth, but the cares of the world choked it out. There was that good soil, however. We noticed it brought forth much. It was highly complimented by the Savior. What about my spiritual roots and yours? Does it run deep? Are you and I rooted and built up in Him? We must be if we are to have the type of personality and the type of disposition to withstand the difficulties and onslaughts that we no doubt shall face as we strive to follow the Master. Some of the texts that we might well notice in 2 Peter 3.18, the very last verse of that book, where they're reminded, but grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. A direct commandment. The necessity to grow What's more, in 1 Peter 2, verse number 2, that we're to desire the sincere milk of the Word that we may grow thereby. All of those thoughts challenge us just as it did the Colossians, no doubt, many years back. As these thoughts continue in verse number 7, note the, the message of thanksgiving. They were urged to abound in thanksgiving. As I ask you to think about that statement with me, the importance of thanksgiving, doesn't that remind us about how blessed we truly are? When you and I have an attitude in which gratitude is an essence of it, we are able to recognize that others are often less fortunate than we, and we have an attitude that tends to be more contented as we're thankful for that which we have been blessed with. Paul admonished these Colossians in that same way. Abound in thanksgiving, and what's more, verse number 8, Beware, lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit. Might we pause and contemplate the thoroughness of that approach. We've already noted that they were to be rooted and built up in Christ. But now, a powerful verb, beware. That word means to see to it. That word means to make this certain and sure you ever be aware and not let no man spoil you, take advantage of you as though it's through philosophy and vain deceit. The idea discusses that of being taken captive. Might we pause and ask, what are philosophies and vain deceits? That word philosophy has behind it the idea of those opinions and the sophistry of men, if you will. Those discussions and those ideas that the human mind has set forth by virtue of his rationale. Doesn't that immediately make mention of this Gnostic idea? That came about from me, and the Lord had never taught it. And now Paul, in a rather direct fashion, says, Be on guard and beware. See to it that no man misleads you and take you captive by these human philosophies and vain deceits. 
though it's often been said, it's worth repeating, isn't it? The gospel of Christ is the one and only power of God to salvation, Romans 1.16. Though men may try to doctor it and change it and twist it, and though they may offer their alternatives, those are all devoid of power. They are empty and vain and useless. Anything that is not 2,000 years old, you see, is either too young or too old. It's the old Jerusalem gospel that's able to save nothing else. Is it any wonder then that to the Galatians, Paul warned them, If any man speak any other thing than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. Not even angels in heaven can change the gospel. Though angels themselves may be mighty, and though they may be powerful, even they have not the liberty to change the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 8 continues on. After the tradition of men after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. The traditions of men. Isn't it sometimes the case that we're still able to see that the traditions of men are elevated to the status of doctrine? That the traditions of men are elevated to the status that some consider equal with the Scriptures? Our study on the Wednesday evening occasions, as we've looked at the various religious bodies upon earth and observed their origin, have we not seen that the investments of human intuition have often been elevated superior to the teachings of the Word? And in those cases, grievous error has taken place. Notice the rudiments of the world, those elementary principles of that on which the world is based. God has established an order within this universe. We see that certainly in science. The solar system is orderly, an atom is orderly. God has illustrated His great nature with order. Those rudimentary principles that exist and that are so great and profound are such that though men have often used them at times to teach things that are not pleasing in the sight of God. Let me illustrate one or at least make mention of it. Could it not be mentioned about the nature of one of the most prevalent scientific teachings general evolution. Something as simple as the observation of change, and that's an evident thing to see. But men have taken that and extended it far beyond what scientific evidence will allow them to do, and have used that to betray the faith of multiplied millions. God is the creator. There is no such thing as this organic evolution principle by which all have come from some initial matter, some far distance in the past. Thus, these rudiments of the world men have often taken and misused, misinterpreted, and in fact extended far beyond that which the God of heaven would permit. The rudiments of the world extends our thinking rather interestingly to note this. What is thus easily seen in this, in this text? Human philosophy is not enough. What does that say about the idea of sincerity? What if a person in complete honesty and sincerity and earnestness makes a complete understanding and feeling of some particular approach of men? Is that a sincerity enough to save him or her? Is that sincerity enough to make him or her pleasing unto God? If it were, why did Paul say beware? Why did he urge faithfulness and to not be led captive by these philosophies? Well, sincerity alone is not enough to save, is it? In both Old and New Testament, those that were sincere still needed to obey in truth that which was given them to do. In Hebrews 13, verse 9, 
Do we not see even yet again, be not carried about with divers doctrines and those teachings of men? And do we not note in Proverbs 14, 12, that there is a way that seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. You see, the heart of man by itself is not enough to ascertain eternal truth. Do we not need the revelation of Scripture? And the Colossians needed to be reminded of that truth. On we see then in verse number 9, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. In Christ, notice that's the antecedent to the pronoun him, in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. We see many things stated in that simple text. In Jesus, we see the absolute zenith and pinnacle of the bodily presence of God. God in presence, if you will, in flesh, has never appeared in any other form like it was in the incarnate Christ. These things then challenge the Colossians. Don't be misled by these mysterious Gnostic teachings into thinking that some men have the ability and the superior knowledge to present that which is on par or equivalent to the revelation of Christ. It is not so. In Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Another reminder, isn't it, of Christ's preeminence. How that He stands at the zenith, the pinnacle, the absolute top of all things that God has made known. These things will set the stage for verse number 10 and for these verses that follow. In fact, let us read verses 10 through 17. And ye are complete in him which is the head of all principality and power, in whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God, who hath raised him from the dead, and you, being dead in your sins and trespass and uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in respect of an holy day or of the new moon or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. As we note in verse number 10, which is a continuation in many ways of verse number 9, he had just noted that Christ was the absolute embodiment of all the Godhead, and then he says, Ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. The Colossians were complete in Christ. In what way are humans made complete today? In what way are you or I made complete? And might we note that that word complete means to be made full. Can you and I find fulfillment, completeness in any way other than Christ? Not so. We find the absolute fulfillment, that which makes you and I full from the perspective of God, in Jesus. That teaches us some interesting things. Christ taught shortly before His own resurrection, or I'm sorry, before His own ascension, in Matthew 28, 18, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. All of it. 
not a section, a portion, or somewhat. All of it belongs into Him, and it's only through Him that you and I are able to be made full. It might be well to recall the thrust of the book of Luke at this point. Of the gospel accounts, the book of Luke is that book that presents Christ as the absolute pinnacle and specimen of a human being. A person who's perfect in every regard. If you and I desire thus to be complete, might we notice that statement in Luke 2.52 where it says of Christ, He increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. Every aspect then of human existence, Christ had it mastered. The same thus could be said of us. If we will tie to Christ, live faithfully in Him, we too can ex experience completeness, certainly available in no other ways. Verse number 11 begins a discussion that for some through the years has been a bit troubling, a bit of a difficulty. Paul makes mention of circumcision. And he does that in a way that perhaps teaches a dramatic truth that you and I certainly need to be familiar with. What is to be said about circumcision? The first thing that we might briefly note, it was certainly taught and practiced in the Old Testament. Its thrust, initially found in Genesis 17, was an absolute statement of the covenant that Abraham had with God. In fact, God said that circumcision was a sign of the covenant. Might we now notice that that act of circumcision was that surgical procedure. It was commanded to be performed on baby boys eight days old. And as that act of circumcision was performed, it was a symbol of their entrance into the family, if you will, of God, and that as members thereof, they were to carry forth the promise that would ultimately bring forth the Messiah into the world. But now might we note the powerful symbolism of that act of circumcision. The Jews came to look upon that in many ways even more significant than they did the law of Moses. Are you circumcised or not? Would be the question they would ask. Might we notice that it's frequently mentioned in the New Testament. But it is not binding today. There were many instances in the New Testament of where there were false teachers who claimed that it was. That one was still in need of being circumcised in order to stand pleasing before God. In fact, one of the first issues that the church had to face in Acts 15 was this. We might note that a conference was convened in Jerusalem, and on that occasion a decision had to be made about the nature of circumcision. The decision was that it is not binding. In fact, note some other passages that teach the same. In 1 Corinthians 7 verse 19, we learn there that there is neither circumcision nor uncircumcision, for in Christ Jesus neither one availeth anything. In Galatians 6.15, in Galatians 5 verse 6, all giving us that same message. And thus today, one is in, not in need of being circumcised in order to in fact be saved. But there were many again in the first century who were teaching that very thing. What is Paul teaching here in his mention of circumcision? Let's read again verse 11. In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Paul is not discussing physical circumcision. He says it's not made with hands, the one he's discussing. Rather, he goes on to say, in whom. The word whom, again a pronoun referring back to Christ. In Christ you are circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, 
continuing in putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. This circumcision of which Paul speaks is a spiritual circumcision. It's a circumcision by which the body of the sins of the flesh are put off. And he goes on in verse 12 to explain when, adverb of manner, when that takes place. Buried with him in baptism. As you and I notice the power of that act, the wonderful nature of it, consider some other remarks that you and I might be able to make. You and I might be shocked to know you and I are spiritually circumcised if we're Christians. When does it take place? Verse 12, buried with him in baptism. On that occasion when you and I were baptized, we were such that the old man of sin was crucified, Romans 12, verses 1 to 12. And in the putting off that, of that body of sins, Paul says we were spiritually circumcised. We now are members of God's family. We're members of that kingdom that's marching toward an eternity in heaven. And what a joyous journey and march that is. And thus, in a symbolic way, it exactly matches the symbolic character of Old Testament circumcision. Notice, though, Paul goes a little bit further as well. For in verse 12, he says, "...wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead." When you and I are raised from that watery grave of baptism, having buried the old man of sin, we rise to walk in newness of Christ and by verse 12 are able to exhibit the walk of faith and the power of all the things that the gospel has to mimic in my life and yours. In verse number 13, as he directly addresses these Colossians, he says, You being dead in your sins, and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. The fact that Paul sets before them is a fact that we mustn't lose sight of either. Specifically that you and I at one time were dead in trespasses and uncircumcised flesh. Note again, the baptism is that act of spiritual circumcision in which the old man of sin is carved away and done away with. And in its place is that new man, because we read in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, that all things old are passed away and all things are become new. We see then that you and I as Christians in our spiritual circumcision are such that we no longer are dead in trespasses and uncircumcision. We are alive unto God. We, in essence, have been brought to spiritual livelihood. This fact also mentioned in Ephesians 2, verse 1. And in so doing, we are able to experience the fact that we walk by faith and not by sight. We are able to experience that we are those who have, of course, begun to use the nature of Christ in terms of salvation. These troubling teachers that were thus hard at work in the Colossian area, perhaps could be reminded by the power of the closing statement of verse number 13. And maybe at times you and I need reminding of that truth as well. He says, having forgiven you all trespasses. How many trespasses then can Christ's blood not cleanse? How many sins can Christ's blood not remit? There's not a one. If you and I, by faithful obedience to the things God has revealed, will come to Him, no matter what the previous nature of our life may have been, no matter what things we may have done, no matter what thoughts we may feel of unworthiness, 
we still should understand Christ died for me and you. All sins can be cleansed. There are those who make far more of the unpardonable sin of Matthew 12 than they should, for they take that from its context. The only sin that Christ's blood won't cleanse is any sin that, can, that will not be brought to him. If I refuse to submit to his commandments, refuse to do that which he is bidden, then he will not cleanse it, for I have been un, unwilling to obey him. In fact, John teaches the same in 1 John 5, 16. Perhaps we might notice then in verse 14 that these troubling teachers were teaching something else. For there was something that went along with that Gnostic teaching. That Gnostic teaching being that the law of Moses must still be obeyed. We've already noted a bit about that in circumcision. But notice how sternly Paul sets forth that point here in verse 14. Blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. The teachers of that day who thus taught that it was still essential to keep the law of Moses were the very ones whom Paul was here addressing. And he wished the Colossians to know that that old law was nailed to the cross of Jesus. It is not binding now. How often do we find the New Testament letters with something like that as their background? The Roman letter, the Galatian letter, this letter, as well as the Hebrew letter, all of them remind us of how, to, how severe that issue was in the first century. May we understand that old law is ever powerful in the sense that it is our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. It leads naturally to the New Testament gospel, but it was nailed to the cross. We do not serve beneath it today. No one does. Can we not see that in verse 14 that that word blotting out helps us appreciate that that word means to eliminate. It means to do away with. It's not that it was partially removed. It was completely removed. So much so that Paul was able to say that this was against us. It was contrary to us. It was hostile to the nature of the acceptance of Christ for this law was never meant to be a perpetual one. The Old Testament law of Moses, in fact, even foretold that it would not be permanent. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. To read passages like that one, tell us of the overwhelming greatness in of the sacrifice of Christ. He himself said in Matthew 5, 17 and 18, that he came not to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. And when he had absolutely, completely fulfilled it by his death on the cross and his subsequent resurrection, that law was forever taken away. No person still serves beneath it. That law of Moses is a part of history. That fact leads us to see in verse number 15 that once Christ nailed that law to the cross, what a graphic way of describing what happened to it. Maybe you and I in our mind's eye can imagine the nails they drove in Christ's hands and feet. They were driving something else that day, not just his body. That old law was nailed to the cross. In what way did that then lead to the greatness that followed? Because that law was removed. Romans 7 verse 4 says, we are now alive to Christ. If that law were still in effect, we could not be completely married to Christ. But because it's been taken away, Spiritually, we could be married to Jesus as our bridegroom and in so doing, be the kind of individuals in his spiritual family that we ought to be. 
perhaps the final set of verses simply would be the icing on the cake of this point that Paul has just made. The law taken away, nailed to the cross. There have been many through the years who've asked, what law was he talking about? You've heard me make statements that it was the law of Moses. All of it in its entirety. There would be some, though, who would severely disagree with us, who think that that old law had various pieces and parts and only part of it was done away with. The other part was not. Let us listen to verses 15 to 17 again and let Paul explain what parts were done away with. Having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Paul, what parts of that law were nailed to the cross? What parts of that law were taken away from us? All the parts that related to the principalities and powers with which it addressed. That old law had many wonderful features about it. It, in fact, taught about sin. It made known the character of obedience to God. It also had a degree of power and authority to it. For Jesus even told that rich young ruler to keep the commandments if you would have everlasting life under the law of Moses. All those principalities and powers, Paul said, all of them have been put off, done away with. What's more, verse 16, having seen Jesus' triumphant conquering and victory over it, let no man therefore judge you in meat or in drink or in a holy day or in respect to the new moon or of the Sabbath days. Those who would thus be justified by the law, Paul said, you are fallen from grace, Galatians 5 verse 4. It might be wise for us to note, specifically in verse number 15 and 16, the word therefore is present. Paul's drawing a conclusion. The conclusion is this, he said to the Colossians, today no one, should then have the authority or right to judge you by whether or not you keep a Sabbath day, whether you keep a holy day, whether you eat or drink certain things or abstain from eating, eating those things. But that was the very core of the law of Moses. There were the food laws of Leviticus chapters 11 and 12. There was the keeping of the Sabbath day, the fourth of the Ten Commandments. There was the observance of the new moon as outlaid in the book of Numbers. Paul said all of that has vanished into history. Is it not then an extremely tragic scene of events when there are those in our world today who still attempt to bind the Sabbath on the human family? Or those who attempt to preach and teach about certain days are holier than others? In Romans 14, Paul expressly taught in that chapter and the next that even to the Romans, there is no requirement of the observance of a holy day. We understand that first day of the week. Is that only day in which we see Christ's wonderful teaching about the assembling as we are doing currently? But as far as keeping some particular day or week or elevating some Sunday above all other Sundays, there's nothing of a teaching of that character to be found anywhere in the New Testament. It might be fair to conclude then in verse 17, which are a shadow of things to come. All the greatnesses of the Old Testament were a mere shadow. They were empty in comparison to the fulfillment that would come under Christ. Thus again the tragedy of trying to bind these matters still on individuals today. Paul told the Colossians 20 centuries ago now, even you are not to be bound by holy days, new moons, various meats and drinks. 
Can we not be thankful for the simplicity that's to be found in Jesus? That simplicity stated in 2 Corinthians 11, verses 2 and 3. Perhaps in light of the closing of verse 17, might we notice then the interesting set of events that we've passed through this evening. We might well summarize in these words some of the lessons that we have seen reminded us of the greatness, first of all, in verses 4 and following, of what we observed in regard to the Colossian and the fact that they were not to be those that would be overcome by philosophy and vain deceit. We saw the simplicity in Christ and the fact that you and I are circumcised spiritually as Christians. We also appreciated the law of Moses was nailed to the cross, all of it. And thus it is not a matter of authority for any person today at all. These things have challenged us to see that in Jesus, in the New Testament, we come to the better covenant, the perfect testimony. It might be this evening, within the sound of my voice, that someone has not given your life to faithful obedience to the commandments of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To these Colossians, Paul encouraged them to not be misled, but to rely only on the simplicity of the truth. Have you based your life in on that truth? Is your life an open testimony of goodness and greatness to all about you? Are you complete in Jesus? If you can't answer yes to that, please tonight at once seriously consider the urgency of the hour, the importance of the time. Do we not read, Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth, Proverbs 27.1. None of us are promised tomorrow. We need to be right tonight. If you're not a faithful Christian... Perhaps you've never initially obeyed the commandments of the gospel. Do that which was enjoined upon those early persons of the books of, of, of the book of Acts especially. You need to believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins. Confess His glorious name and be baptized. Upon so doing, Christ will add you to His body. If you've done that but haven't been faithful, come back to that first love. We'd be happy to pray on your behalf. And God has promised, 1 John 1 verse 7, to forgive you those trespasses when you repent appropriately. If we could be of assistance in either of those ways tonight, we'd be happy to do it, even while together we stand and while we sing.